0: Quick one, if you can hit follow or subscribe to this podcast, that really helps me track new listeners. Cheers! Hello, and welcome to episode 43 of the Wealth Journal podcast with me, Jay Hardy. Now, this week I want to talk to you about bonds. Yes, very exciting. But before I do, remember, it's important to note that the Wealth Journal is not financial advice. It's purely here for both educational and entertainment purposes. Before you make any investment, I do recommend that you speak to a qualified investment professional or financial advisor. Okay, so bonds. I feel like this is an area where I have a bit of a knowledge gap. So I thought I'd spend a bit of time this week trying to understand bonds a bit better. And that's pretty much what my Wealth Journal is about i probably say over the last few months and years, I've very much been more focused on stocks, crypto, other alternative assets. But I have actually held bonds as part of my own portfolio, based on the fact that I know that they're generally less volatile and they usually carry less risk. I've always sort of had in my mindset that your portfolio should have an element of bonds in it. But I thought I would dig a little bit deeper this week and understand just more about them and the best way for the average retail investor to, to get exposure to them. Okay, I get it. Probably not the most inspiring topic. And that's possibly the main reason why I've not really focused much time on bonds in the past. But bonds are pretty much fundamental to the running of global economies, countries, businesses, and also impact me and you on a regular basis, probably more than what you might think. Where there is debt, IOUs, large-scale investments, it's likely that somewhere up that chain, a bond is involved. Now, governments, they provide a continuous flow of bonds because many of them often run trade deficits. They use bonds to fund public spending, infrastructure investment, and bonds also provide a way for governments to influence the supply of cash in an economy. On the commercial front, both new and existing companies also use bonds as a form of borrowing to fund their investments. And one term that I found interesting is this term money printing or quantitative easing, as it's known. And we often think of money printing literally when governments effectively increase the sp- supply of money in the economy. But they don't actually just fire up the printing press and start issuing a load of new banknotes and one pound coins. What they actually do is buy assets from private sector companies, and they're usually buying back. Government bonds with new money that they've created to then increase the supply and circulation. Now, the expectation is that the banks, with this new money that they've just sold their bonds back to the government to, will be more inclined to lend to businesses, uh, consumers to help then fuel the growth within the economy. Now, some would argue that this isn't always the most effective way to help the average person on the street. Um, because there have been instances where banks have used the funds to bolster their own balance sheets rather than lend. You know, money goes to money, right? And that can be a bit of a criticism of quantitative easing. Anyway, back to bonds. They're essentially IOUs. Governments or companies issue bonds to finance long-term projects, and they can range from short-term bonds to long-term, maybe even up to 30 years, possibly beyond. They often have a fixed rate of interest, which the government or the company pays the lender and this is known as the yield and the interest rate is known as the coupon so if you hear them terms yield coupon that's essentially what they mean at the end of the bond's term the borrower receives their initial amount back and will also have benefited from the yield returns there you go exciting stuff long term steady yields that's what bonds are all about but what is important to know is that the interest rate on a bond is fixed But the price of the actual bond itself can fluctuate. And there are sort of primary and secondary markets for bonds. So you can issue a bond and then it can be traded on the secondary market. The price of the bond can go up and down. So let's say a bond has a face value of £100 and an interest rate or a coupon of 5%. The annual payment would, of course, be £5. But let's say that the market demanded a higher yield for that bond. This could be because the bond has become more riskier Um, and in that case the interest rate wouldn't change but the selling price of the bond would would then decline to give an overall high yield. A good example of this was back in 2011 when Italy was having troubles issuing new 10-year bonds. The markets were concerned about Italy's ability to pay its debts and demanded a much higher yield for the, the higher perceived risk. As a result, Bonds with a face value of one hundred euros were selling for seventy one euros, which works out a uh, yield as around around about seven percent now at the time in the UK, a personal borrower could access an unsecured personal loan for around six percent so think about that that 's basically the average Joe on the street could get an unsecured personal loan for six percent could actually borrow at a better rate than the entire Italian government, which is which is crazy, but it just illustrates the example. Now, the price of bonds usually depends on the credit rating which is applied to the issuer. And these are done by the credit rating agencies, which you may or may not be familiar with, but the basically standard and pause and Moody's, for example. The higher the rating, the lower the interest rate, basically because then the risk is considered lower. And the ratings start from AAA, which is the highest level of creditworthiness. e.g., I would say, the US government, for example all the way down to D, which is basically a rating given to a company which is pretty much in default. I think I could be wrong, but I think Russia is currently rated like double C, which is basically saying that their economy is vulnerable and there's possibly a risk of default. So that just gives you a bit of a context. And they do the same ratings for companies as well as, I guess, governments. But it's fair to say that Only companies of a certain size that have a good credit rating are able to issue bonds. And their ratings can change if their circumstances also change. And this can result in sometimes a downgrade of their credit rating. Therefore, investors will demand higher yields to compensate them for the price of the falling bond. Often when a company gets downgraded, this can have a negative effect on the company's stock price as their costs of borrowing go up. It makes it harder for them to raise money to invest. Their margins get squeezed, which of course isn't great for shareholders and therefore is reflected in the stock price. So in essence, bonds are very important and play a huge role in keeping the financial markets operating efficiently. Now, it's very likely that if you have a pension fund, some of that fund will be allocated towards bonds. When you were young, it could be 20% or even less, but over time that will probably increase. And the benefit for investors is that through buying high quality bonds, you limit the volatility and risk on your portfolio. And you also get paid interest, which can help grow your capital over time. But you do reduce the, the upside potential as bonds tend to be more conservative. It's that risk reward payoff, low risk, low reward. Over time, though, as you get closer to retirement, you'll probably see the bond portion of your portfolio become much bigger, maybe 80% or even more, to help protect your fund because your tolerance for risk at that age will be much less. You'll basically need all that money in the future to help you retire rather than it being invested in the long term in stocks. Now, I know listeners of The Wealth Journal like to take investment decisions in their own hands, and you might have a, you might have a pension, but you also might to want to build your own additional portfolio and possibly get exposure to bonds and their benefits. So how do you do that? Well, it's actually very difficult, maybe even impossible, for the average retail investor to buy bonds direct from the source. They're often sold over-the-counter, as it's referred to, which is basically a decentralized marketplace where you have market makers buying and selling It's not a place for retail investors. Unlike, I'd say, a traditional exchange, which is more transparent, more regulated, that's probably where you're going to get access to the bond market. In my experience, the best way to get access is probably firstly through like a ready-made portfolio, similar to a pension fund or, for example, a Vanguard Life Strategy Fund, which has a certain percentage allocated to bonds from as little as 20% all the way up to 80%. And this percentage could be made up from you know all sorts of different types of bonds UK bonds US bonds global bonds you benefit from the buying power of the fund manager to access these bonds but remember all investments even in bonds carry risk i looked at the life strategy uh, 20% equity fund that vanguard have which is made up of 80% bonds and over the past year it's down 10% and this is probably more of an indication of the current high inflation environment low interest environment and You know, most bond rates have probably been low, um, if not below inflation. If the ready-made fund option isn't for you and you want to manage it all by yourself, then you can access bonds via ETFs. Now, these are similar to bond mutual funds because they hold a portfolio of bonds with different particular strategies, from US treasuries to high yields, and holding periods can vary also between long-term and short-term. Bond ETFs are passively managed and trade similar to stock ETFs on the major exchanges. This helps promote market stability by adding liquidity and transparency, and they can provide investors with the opportunity to gain exposure to the bond market with the same ease and transparency of buying stocks and shares. Bond ETFs are also more liquid than individual bonds and the mutual funds, which tend to just sort of trade at one single price at the end of each day when the market closes, whereas bond ETFs are pretty much trading freely, you know, minute by minute, prices uh, changing similar to stocks. And they also pay out interest as well, similar to similar to the bonds. Um, you often get that through monthly dividend, and any capital gains are often paid out through an annual dividend. It is, of course, important to remember that these dividends are taxable. Uh, they're treated as either income or capital gains tax. Now, when I've invested in bonds, it's usually been through a stocks and shares ISA, which is obviously um, tax-free, but don't take my advice on this. If you're concerned about tax, of course, speak to a tax professional. But there are many different types of bond ETFs out there as well. It probably gets a little bit confusing. You've got treasury bond ETFs, corporate bond ETFs, international bond ETFs, even junk bond ETFs. If you're unsure what type It might be worth looking for a total market bond ETF just to get overall exposure, but not financial advice. Make sure you do your own research. Now, the main limitation, though, for bond ETFs is that the investor's initial investment is at greater risk with an ETF. If you think of a traditional bond, you basically loan somebody the cash and at the end of the term, you get it back with an ETF the bond never actually matures. It constantly just gets rolled over. So there isn't a guarantee that the principal will be repaid in full. You'll eventually just have to sell the ETF and the price might be different than when you bought it. Furthermore, when interest rates rise, it can tend to harm the price of the ETF, particularly if the, if the coupon rate or the interest rate is low and that's fixed, um, then the price of the bond might come down. And yeah, again, as the ETF doesn't mature it is difficult to mitigate against that that interest rate risk just in general. So there we have it, bonds. I hope that was an exciting episode for you to go through bonds. But you know what? It's all learning and it's an important aspect of the marketplace. So I thought I would dedicate a bit of time to it. Now, a bit of housekeeping. Obviously, I've been doing the Wealth Journal now for 43 episodes pretty much straight. We are coming up to summer and it has been relentless. (laughs) Committing to doing an episode pretty much every week has been relentless. Um, so I've got some time, I've got some time away with the family coming up. So there will be a bit of a break. Maybe we'll be, we'll be returning for for season two. Let's call this the end of season one. Um, I've still got more guests lined up for the podcast, which I'm excited to to bring you as well. So yeah, I think it's time for a bit of a break, time to refresh and, um, if I can get organized, I will probably try and attempt to put some, I guess, key learnings episode out from some of my past my past episodes that, that certainly still resonate with me today. So I'm going to give that a go, uh, but no promises there. Let's just see what happens. And yeah, one thing I will say, though, is just as always, thank you so much for your support. You, The Wealth Journal listener. Um, the amount of messages that I get on a regular basis from the, from the listener of the wealth journal. This is why I've continued to stick with it and do the podcast. If people are enjoying it, I enjoy it. Then there we go. It it, it brings a lot of value to me. And, um, yeah, I find it sort of therapeutic at times as well to do the wealth journal podcast. And of course, it's allowed me to meet so many wonderful people, so many wonderful guests, which I just would not have had the opportunity to meet or to chat to or discuss with if it wasn't for the excuse of uh, you know recording a podcast. That's been incredible as well. So if you're sat there listening to this and you think there's a topic that you're interested in, you wanted to learn more about it, you want to grow your network or anything like that. You know, forget networking events, forget sort of posting things on LinkedIn, set up a podcast, get talking to people. It's a a great way of of learning, great way of growing your network, great way of actually building real connections with people. I recommend it. Your, your, Your knowledge will massively expand through any sort of subject topic or anything like that. For me, you know, selfishly, the Wealth Journal has been a way for me to learn more about building wealth um, and obviously sharing that with you, the listener, but it's actually opened so many doors for me and certain opportunities. I've been able to have conversations with with a lot of guests and obviously I've invited you, the listener, into those conversations as well. But some of the learnings I've got from that have just been massive, um, massive. And I guess, you know, it's compounding each week, each week that's compounding. So I would say through the process of doing the wealth journal, I've become a much better investor. My knowledge of the markets have massively improved. Of different asset classes, constructing portfolios, things like that. It's um it's been a real game changer in the podcast. I hope you've enjoyed the journey as well. And yeah, thanks again. Thanks again for listening and I look forward to speaking with you soon. Take care.